Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lissenby. Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lisenby. Kristen, it is so good to see you today, but I'm also just really sad, tragically, because the last time I saw you, we were together. I know, it's true. (laughs) I miss you too. Uh, Listeners, if you follow me and Kate on Instagram, you already know, but we finally got to meet in person on Astrological Samhain at a haunted hotel that we unknowingly booked. Um, And it was truly so special. Um, Also, maybe a bit spooky. Definitely spooky. (laughs) Definitely spooky. Uh, We met up with art witch Caitlin Brown and drank wine and sat beneath the moon and did some candle magic on my last day. It was Mm -hmm. truly divine. Um, I also met your familiar Kate, the famous Mm -hmm. banjo who just (laughs) like loves to start playing the moment we hit record. Um, So yeah, it was really special and teleport me back anytime. It was beyond and then also just the fact that we had to like race you to the airport before a hurricane tropical storm set in yeah there was just a lot of magic brewing brewing that week Mm -hmm. can't wait for you to return but while we were together listeners we talked a little bit about sleep paralysis which we both think is just so fascinating and also dream protection. And sleep paralysis is something that happens to me kind of occasionally, but ever since the Tamed Wild Samhain retreat, I've just been having the most intense dreams, um, which of course, tis the season. And then, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, we stayed in that haunted inn in Terrytown. And so sleep paralysis and sleep and dream protection has just been on the brain. And over the years, we've definitely had a few listeners ask about this. So I would love to hear, Kristen, if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share. Yeah, I love dream talk. So I love this question. Um, And of course, you know, there are medical scientific explanations as to what sleep paralysis is. Some say it can be caused by jet lag or sleep disruption, sleep apnea, all sorts of things. But I'm not a doctor or scientist, so I know more about the spiritual, magical, esoteric side of sleep paralysis, including the sleep paralysis demon. So perhaps the most famous depiction of the sleep paralysis demon can be seen in Henry Fuseli's 1781 painting called The Nightmare. I would recommend doing a quick Google search if this image is new to you, but it's a beautiful yet eerie depiction of a sleeping woman with some sort of entity sitting atop her chest. However, this demon entity is not looking at her, but at you, the viewer, adding to the level of curiosity and horror at what we're witnessing. If you've experienced sleep paralysis yourself, as many of us have, because it's 
fairly common, we might feel someone or something sitting atop our chest, making it difficult to breathe. And as the name suggests, people often feel paralyzed during this encounter, and some describe sensing or seeing a dark entity or shadow person. Sleep paralysis is often accompanied by intense fear, and while it usually only lasts for some seconds, it can feel like it lasts much longer. Over the years, this entity has been compared to many things, including an incubus or succubus, witches, psychic vampires or energy vampires, the hag, and a demon from Germanic and Scandinavian folklore called the Mara, who sits on dreamers' chests and invokes nightmares. There's also a theory that the legend of Kana Tavaro in Fiji is related to sleep paralysis, but in this case, it's not a demon visiting you, but a recently deceased family member with unfinished business. Kate, do you have any thoughts on sleep paralysis? Yeah, well, first I have to say that I just went and Googled this painting because I had not seen it. And mm. <laughs> listeners, I'm just sitting over here like, oh, wow. So please definitely look that up because you're mm -hmm. right. Like the the creature here looking directly at the viewer is so unnerving mm -hmm. and captivating at the same time. Wow. Um, and and yeah, I mean, the, the ancestor bit too really speaks to me because, mm -hmm. you know, when my grandfather passed the spring, I woke up kind of just before he died and I saw a shadow in the room and it looked at me and said, not yet, but soon. And then it was sort of that sleep paralysis moment of like, I couldn't wake up yet. I was asleep yet. I was receiving this message from this sort of other being, um, so that's a really cool perspective that I haven't heard before because I definitely yeah. was afraid of the paralysis, but not of the figure itself in that moment. But, you know, I have kind of had the other way more frightening experience. So listeners, if you struggle with this like I do, um, black tourmaline has been a really powerful ally um, kind of against the more frightening aspect of dream work. I had a friend make me a black tourmaline pendant and I wear it all the time for protection and support when sleeping and it's truly helped. Um, it's like such a spooky topic, um, but mm -hmm. I don't know, we're just like spooky beings. So I'm just forever intrigued. <laughs> yes, here's to being spooky beans. <laughs> <laughs> But I definitely second you with the black tourmaline. That was like my first stop, um, you know, after we had our experience at the haunted haunted hotel um, seeking out some black tourmaline. So I would I would definitely second that suggestion if anyone has experienced this as well. Also, send us your stories if you have them. We'd love to hear. Yes. We can keep this conversation going. <laughs> Mm -hmm. We love a good spooky story. But for our podcast today, um, would you like to introduce our new series? Yeah, I would love to. So listeners, Kristen and I put our witchy minds together and realized that over the years, there was a mystical subject that we hadn't really dove into yet. And that is mythical creatures. The beasts of stories that span time and places have captured the imagination of humanity for as long as humanity has existed. 
mermaids, the fae, the phoenix, unicorns, basilisks, griffins. These living myths inspire, challenge, and offer us lessons if only we would listen. So over the next few weeks, Kristen and I will be researching different mythical beasts and their myths and then telling each other and you about their stories. This week, join us for The Phoenix and the Unicorn. In the Red Book of Animal Stories, a 19th century collection of tales about mystical creatures and their habits, author Andrew Lang says that, quote, The bird Phoenix cometh and burneth himself to ashes. And the first day after men find in the ashes a worm, and on the second day they find a bird, alive and perfect. And on the third day the bird flieth away. He hath a crest of feathers upon his head, larger than the peacock hath. His neck is yellow, and his beak is blue. His wings are of purple colors, and his tail yellow and red in stripes across. A fair bird he is to look upon when you see him against the sun, for he shineth full gloriously and nobly. Kristen, I have to ask, is this the same Andrew Lang as the fairy books? Yes, the Ah, one and only. So cool. (laughs) Yeah, I knew I had to include him in this series because uh, he's talked about so many mythical creatures, um, you know, but the famous storyteller Andrew Lang, he wasn't the only person to write about the phoenix. Although, as with all mythological beings, the stories and descriptions of this famous firebird are vast and oftentimes conflicting. In the book Breverton's Phantasmagoria, a compendium of monsters, myths, and legends, it says that when it comes to the phoenix's story, there are usually two different versions. The first says that the phoenix, of which there were many roaming the world, came from India. In this version, the bird lives to be 500 years old, and when it senses death is near, it visits a frankincense tree to collect a ball of resin. The bird flies around with this frankincense until spring, when priests in Heliopolis add sticks and twigs to their spring altars. When the phoenix sees this, it makes a nest atop the altar, and while holding the ball of resin, lays down and immediately bursts into flames. From the ashes, a worm is found. The next day, the worm has transformed into a bird, and on the third day, the bird completes its metamorphosis into a phoenix and returns to its homeland. It's really amazing how many myths frankincense is woven into. I know. I always think of Bible stories, but mm-hmm. um, also Hecate, as she's a fan of frankincense, um, you know, like like 99% of all other deities. But yeah. uh, for you, what stories come to mind? Yeah, I mean, same. Like, definitely off the top of my head, I think of the Bible. But yeah, I've also seen it woven in as sacred offerings for gods and goddesses, much like Hecate, as you mentioned. Yeah. And the more I, you know, was researching the Phoenix, um, it really makes sense. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we'll elaborate a little more. But back to the Phoenix. So in this first version, as I was mentioning, the bird goes to Heliopolis to die and be reborn. And I'd like to talk a bit more about this major city and spiritual center in ancient Egypt. So Heliopolis was the city of the sun. It was home to sun god Atum, who he later associated with Ra and Horus. 
In some cases, it was also known as the cradle of the gods and the temple of the nine gods. The number nine a reference to the nine major Egyptian deities, a tomb, Tefnut, Set, Isis, Osiris, Shu, Geb, Nephtis, and Newt, who also had spiritual importance in the city. The first records of Heliopolis date back to about 2900 BC. It exists today about five miles north of Cairo, and if we translate the city's current name from Arabic, it means Eye of the Sun. Heliopolis wasn't known for being a political center like Edfu, which was where the temple um, of Horus was. It was more a spiritual hub, like I said. So it makes sense that the mythological phoenix, perhaps as a representation of the sun god, would come to sacrifice himself and be reborn here. A tomb was associated with the solar energies, no surprise there, but as this deity was born from Nu, the primordial waters of chaos, they were said to encompass both masculine and feminine energies, making them a divine creator and symbol of perfection. In the second version of the phoenix's story, the bird comes from ancient Arabia and is a mixture of purple and red feathers. When it gets old, it builds a pyre, faces the sun, a nod to the sun god in his city, and bursts into flames. It fans the flames with its wings until the bird is entirely reduced to ash. From that ash, a new phoenix is reborn right away. So the main difference between these two versions is that in the second one, there is only one phoenix that roams the skies at a time, whereas in the first version, there were many. The Roman philosopher and writer Pliny the Elder, who lived between 23 and 79 AD, sort of combines these two theories and adds his own take on the phoenix's description. He says that, quote, The phoenix, of which there's only one in the world, is the size of an eagle. It is gold around the neck, its body is purple, and its tail is blue with some rose-colored feathers. It has a feathered crest on its head. No one has ever seen the phoenix feeding. In Arabia, it is sacred to the sun god. It lives 540 years. When it is old, it builds a nest from wild cinnamon and frankincense, fills the nest with scents, and lies down on it until it dies. From the bones and marrow of the dead phoenix, there grows a sort of maggot, which grows into a bird the size of a chicken. The bird performs funeral rites for its predecessor, then carries the whole nest to the city of the sun near Panchaya and places it on an altar there. End quote. Mm-hmm. Pliny the Elder writes about unicorns too, so I just love our overlap in sources here. And I also love the fact that it performs funeral rites for its predecessor. I mean, a truly powerful metaphor. I know, and... That's I love I always love the overlap because, you know, Mm -hmm. listeners, Kate and I don't like write these episodes like really together, per se. We do like our research separately. And so it's always amazing to see the overlap. So I'm curious um, what he has to say about the unicorn. Mm -hmm. Um, But like I mentioned, uh, I mentioned Panchaya, which was a Greek island uh, first referenced in the fourth century B.C. by Greek philosopher Euhemeris. It was said to be a utopian society. In the book Breverton's Phantasmagoria, there is a beautiful quote from Ovid's first century Metamorphosis, book 15, that reads, quote, There is one, a bird, 
which renews itself and reproduces from itself. The Assyrians call it the phoenix. It does not live on seeds and herbs, but on drops of incense and the sap of a cardamom plant. When it has lived for five centuries, it then builds a nest for itself in the topmost branches of a swaying palm tree, using only its beak and talons. As soon as it has lined it with cassia bark and smooth spikes of nard, lavender, cinnamon fragments, and yellow myrrh, it settles on top and ends its life among the perfumes. They say that, from the parent's body, a young phoenix is reborn, destined to live the same number of years. When age has given it strength and it can carry burdens, it lights the branches of the tall palm of the heavy nest and piously carries its own cradle. That was its father's tomb. And, reaching the city of Hyperion, the sun god, through the clear air, lays it down in front of the sacred doors of Hyperion's temple of the sun. End quote. I know that's a total mouthful there, but, um, you know, in a metaphorical sense, the phoenix represents periodic destruction and rebirth. It suggests life after death and the many endings and do-overs humans will experience in their lives and also collectively. The occultist, artist, and author Oswald Wirth said that this elusive bird is a symbol of our inner phoenix, the fire that we nurture inside ourselves, enabling us to live out every moment and to overcome each and every partial death, which we call a dream or change. According to Gino Testi, a Roman alchemist, the phoenix is associated with the color red and the regeneration of universal life and the successful completion of a process. I think it's easy to fall in love with a phoenix, especially if you love shape-shifting throughout your own personal mythos. I wrote a piece on the phoenix for Tamed Wild's animal symbology series on their blog, and from that article I shared that some people call this creature the king of birds and compare its divinity to that of Apollo, Greek god of the sun. The likeness is there, both are framed in gold and soar through the heavens, but the phoenix's relationship to death, rebirth, and the number nine alludes to another archetype, the triple goddess. The goddess, whether she appears as Gaia, the great mother, or another form, speaks to sacrifice as a way to move beyond the threshold. This is the doorway to the other world, the place where dreams take shape and what was previously intangible can now be felt in the palm of the hand. We see these sacrifices reflected in the seasons, plants, and the animal world. Summer fades to autumn and then falls into winter. The once fragrant flower turns brittle and drops her seeds. Animals sacrifice their bodies for their young, and in the case of the phoenix, a pile of soft feathers ignites and burns to ash when we least expect it. Like all the elements, fire demands respect, but not fear. Fire is a filter, an amendment. When we walk through the flames, we sacrifice habits and patterns that until now we thought we needed to survive and thrive. The phoenix teaches us that sacrifice is acceptance, an acknowledgement that we've outgrown a nest that once felt so cozy and warm. Sacrifice is also surrender. It permits us to weave a story that intertwines victory with disappointment, self-acceptance with self-denial. It will be beautiful because it's honest, it's strange, and it's ours. The phoenix says that when we tire of one version of ourselves, there's another waiting. All we need do is welcome them home. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much for that, Kristen. So beautiful, mm-hmm. honest, strange ours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the symbol of the phoenix. And Same. I'm going to be taking that into the rest of my day. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about the unicorn now with with you um, Mm -hmm. and with our listeners. And I can just honestly say that the unicorn was the first love of my life. (laughs) Um, The first poem I ever wrote, I dictated to my mom. So she wrote it down for me. And it was about a unicorn with a brave heart. And the books that I loved were just filled to the brim with unicorns. There was one particularly, The Naming. It was this illustrated book of a unicorn receiving its name. So beautiful. Um, And on my third birthday, my parents gave me, you know, those like sticks that you ride with like the horse head on them? Yeah, the hobby horse. Yeah. Oh, is that what they're called? I didn't know. I think so. Okay. Yeah. I was given a unicorn iteration of this and my mom just like still laughs because she's like, when we gave it to you, you started crying and you were like, this is all I ever wanted. (laughs) (laughs) She makes me just smile, but, um, I'm not, and I know I'm not alone in my love of unicorns, which is why it's so, they're so amazing. Um, because Mm -hmm. this fantastic and magical creature has just captured the hearts of many and for centuries. The unicorn is eternal and beyond even a story, it's a symbol for belief in our world. One of the first authors I, I was a fan of was Bruce Coville, and I'm I'm really curious if you know him, Kristen, or if any of our listeners do. Yeah, are you going to mention the Unicorn Chronicles? Am I am I thinking of the same person? Here? Yeah, mm-hmm, we are. Yes. Yeah, he wrote Into the Land of the Unicorns, which is like part of the Unicorn Chronicle books. Um, they're just incredible YA books if anyone's looking for those. But um, he also wrote The Unicorn Treasury, which is just this like collection of poems and lore and stories. And as a kid, I wrote him a piece of fan mail and he wrote me back and I've just never forgotten it. So thank that. you, Bruce, for inspiring my love of unicorns and of writing. And I'm just happy that 20 years later, I'm still doing the same things. But mm-hmm. Bruce wrote in the Unicorn Treasury, quote, Despite its worldwide fame, there are those who believe that there are no more unicorns. One reason people give for their disappearance is that when Noah built the ark, the unicorns didn't make it on board, either because they were too large or too silly, playing games and frisking about until Noah couldn't wait any longer. Others think that they were simply hunted into extinction. Still others believe that the unicorns left when the world became less sympathetic to the old magic, fleeing to someplace better suited to their strange beauty. Saddest of all are those who believe there were never any unicorns to begin with. But here's what I believe. Wherever else they may have come from, unicorns live inside the true heart's believer, which means that as long as we can dream, there will be unicorns, end quote. And though the unicorn has been referenced in everything from William Shakespeare to Faulkner to fantasy novels for the young, I have to ask, where did the myth of the unicorn begin? Describing what a unicorn is seemed at first a strange endeavor because it seemed so obvious and so simple, but when pulling the curtain back, The descriptions of these mythical creatures moves beyond the standard illustrations you may be familiar with. 
So for those that don't know, I visited with Peter S. Beagles, The Last Unicorn, for a definition of the strange and beautiful beast. Quote, The unicorn lived in a lilac wood, and she lived all alone. She was very old, though she did not know it, and she was no longer the careless color of sea foam, but rather the color of snow falling on a moonlit night. But her eyes were still clear and unwearied, and she still moved like a shadow on the sea. She did not look anything like a horned horse, as unicorns are often pictured, being smaller and cloven-hoofed, and possessing the oldest, wildest grace that horses have never had, that deer have only in a shy, thin imitation, and goats in dancing mockery. Her neck was long and slender, making her head seem smaller than it was, and the mane that fell almost to the middle of her back was as soft as dandelion fluff and as fine as cirrus. She had pointed ears and thin legs with feathers of white hair at the ankles, and the long horn above her eyes shone and shivered with its own seashell light, even in the deepest midnight. End quote. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the unicorn appeared in early Mesopotamian artworks, and it was referred to in the ancient myths of India and China. The earliest description in Greek literature of a single-horned animal was by the historian Cetesis circa 400 BCE, who described the unicorn with a white body, purple head, and blue eyes, and on its forehead was a cubit long horn, colored red at the pointed tip, black in the middle, and white at the base. The scholar Chris Lavers, author of the 2009 The Natural History of Unicorns, wrote that Cetesis assembled the unicorn out of three animals indigenous to the region, the Indian rhinoceros, whose horn is associated with medicinal properties, the goat-like horned kairu, and the reddish and white colored kayang, a large wild ass. Pliny, the elder, described the unicorn saying that the unicorn is the fiercest animal and it is said that it is impossible to capture one alive. It has the body of a horse, the head of a stag, the feet of an elephant, the tail of a boar, and a single black horn three feet long in the middle of its forehead. Its cry is a deep bellow. It was very fleet of foot and difficult to capture. Certain poetic passages of the Bible refer to a strong and splendid horned animal called Re'im, and this word was translated to unicorn or rhinoceros in many versions of the Bible, but many modern translations prefer wild ox. As a biblical animal, the unicorn was interpreted allegorically in the early Christian church. And so, beyond being what we simply know as a horned horse, the unicorn story combines a few of the familiar animals from the more-than-human world, adding to its mystery. However, what we can all agree on is its magical horn. Those who drank from its horn were thought to be protected from stomach trouble, epilepsy, and even poison. The horn is known as an alicorn, which helps me in recording this podcast with the trouble of saying unicorn horn. Like, try saying that three times fast. But 
cups were reputedly made of unicorn horn. However, historians have proven this to be rhinoceros or narwhal tusk, and these were highly valued by people in the Middle Ages as a protection against poison. So for our neurotic royalty out there, this was a prized possession, of course. Mm. Um, And because of its prized nature, tests were developed, of course, to determine whether or not this horn was indeed from a unicorn or not. And some of these tests included drawing a ring on the floor with the alicorn and then placing a spider inside of the ring to see if the spider became trapped within the circle. If you were to place the horn in water, if it was real, it would cause the water to bubble as if it were boiling, but the water would remain cold. You could also place a piece of silk upon burning coals and then place the horn on top of the silk. If it truly was the horn of a unicorn, the silk would not be burned. You could also bring the horn near a poisonous animal or plant, and the feared thing would burst into flame as a reaction to its presence. And beyond healing as a horn detached from the creature itself, because if you're like me, you prefer to have a unicorn attached to the unicorn horn, Mm -hmm. unicorns were known for their healing magic. They could clear and clean bodies of water that had gone toxic. There's a really beautiful story in that unicorn treasury about a unicorn that does just this. Um, And they could also heal the wounded. The unicorn was particularly drawn to young women. And because of this, there is a trope. um, And you may have seen a lot of this in like kind of the tapestry work um, of the time of using virgins or maidens to lure a unicorn to a clearing in the wood before slipping a golden bridle over its head to capture it. In a recent article titled The Immortal Myth of the Unicorn, published in the New York Times, Malika Rao writes, quote, Yet why precisely does the unicorn persist in our collective imagination, and why does it feel especially relevant now? Perhaps it helps to return to Cetesis, who described a beast able to outrun her pursuers, impossible to capture unless encircled by an army of men and horses. She would rather fight with her horn, teeth, and hooves and die free than live as a captive. The unicorn stands for our own desire to be seen as extraordinary. She allows us to believe that we too are special if only we were allowed to live unconstrained, if only we didn't have to conform ourselves to fit into the world around us. She is the ultimate rare being, a wild spirit we discern in ourselves, one that can bring both destruction and relief, violence and healing. Given our rising sea levels, ongoing wars, and the ambient uncertainty of the now, we're more than ever aware of how precarious the world really is, yet we continue to survive, even as the structures that we've created crumble before our eyes, leaving us alone as we always were in the woods." The unicorn may go by other names, depending on the mythology you're familiar with, But what rings true is that these mystical and mythical creatures have survived the test of time and have traveled with us through generations and stories because they remind humans of an important truth. There is more than meets the eye when dealing with the great mystery, and stories are important. The unicorn is about remembering who we are before the rules told us who we should be. The unicorn doesn't believe in shoulds, only in possibility. 
The unicorn protects and defends, yet it also carries a profound peace and safety. The unicorn heals. The unicorn exists in the liminal. It captures the heart of the young and is deeply understood by the free and unbridled. And when we are older, we can return to this archetype to remember that eternal and internal maiden that we always carry with us who reminds us that magic is real. And Kristen, though I could talk about unicorns with you and our listeners forever, and perhaps I will, before we go, I would love to share some final advice from Alice in Wonderland, a version by L. Lothorian. Quote, That doesn't mean I pretend to be someone else. I don't know how to be something I'm not, okay? I don't know what you learned in that fantasy world of yours growing up, but I was told to just be myself. Unless you can be a unicorn, Dee says. In that case, you should always be a unicorn. End quote. There could not be a more perfect note to end with. Listeners, if you have any unicorn or phoenix lore to share, send us a message on Instagram or email us at podcast at tamedwild.com. We'd love to hear it. so much listeners for joining us today on magic and alchemy a podcast from tamed wild again we're kate baloo and Kristen lisenby you can find us online at k8 baloo and at east and alchemy send us all of your questions comments or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com you can view all the amazing offerings from tamed wild on their instagram at tamed wild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune into next week's episode for Mythological Creatures Part 2, The Mermaid and the She. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.